Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to the FT Arts Podcast. Stretching over four years and encompassing more than 500 events, the Cultural Olympiad is the artistic marathon that culminates with the current London 2012 Festival and it could be said to be sprinting towards its finishing line. But has this unprecedented artistic project, which has cost a reported £97 million to stage, succeeded in ensuring that the Olympics and Paralympics are not just about sport? I'm Jan Daly, and in the studio to discuss the impact of the Olympiad are Sarah Weir, Chief Executive of The Legacy List, the post-Olympic charity set up for arts, culture, education and skills, William Seacott, founder of the Forward Arts Foundation and its associated Poetry Prize, and the instigator of Winning Words, a national initiative to incorporate poetry into the Olympic Games, and Peter Afton, the FT's cultural commentator and columnist. Sarah, for many people, legacy means the future of the stadiums and venues built for the Games. How does culture come into it? Culture comes into it by building on the last four years of the Olympic Deliveries Authority's art in the park and then taking it on for the future through the work of the charity. And William, winning words will put permanent poetry installations and and temporary animations into the Olympic Park. What's its aim? Well, I think poetry is our cultural legacy to the world, you know, the language of Shakespeare and Chaucer and countless others. So I think it's very, very important that uh, that is framed as part of the the sporting event. Peter, the Olympiad is intended to have a national constituency and this year's Edinburgh Festival, for example, will be larger than usual as a result. Do you feel it has succeeded in helping expand the focus away from London? It's taken a little bit of the focus away from London but I do want to emphasise you know when an Olympic Games gets going um, it really does dominate everything and in the future the London Olympic Games will be remembered for those moments of sport those extraordinary moments which tend to blast away anything else that's going on in the national and indeed international consciousness. Can you put your love of sport aside a little bit because we're talking about culture here. (laughs) So, William, what's happening with winning words outside London? Outside London, we've got uh, words that are going to be uh, cast permanently into the infrastructure of some of the other venues and um, training camps. But also we've got some beacon towns around Britain who are uh, going to become poetry towns. And they're not only going to put poetry physically into their infrastructure, but it's going to go much deeper than that. And local community organisations, local schools and so forth will get involved in poetic events. And Sarah, the cultural life at a local level, do you think it will continue to be influenced once the fireworks have faded from our memory? 
Mm, I do, because firstly, the Olympic Delivery Authority's work that I oversaw for four years is all permanent. So there's a creative presence in the park, both the look of the park and the feel, but also through the legacy list. We've already got about eight projects on the go. We just announced the shortlist for the next floating cinema, which will be for the next three years and culminate in hopefully a pop-up cinema on the park. We've got a three-year art camp for young people already going. We've just done a poetry project for 950 young people around the park and the results are out next week so we're already doing the future right now actually there's a longer term impact as well which is i can't tell you how many adults have said to me during my lifetime i remember in 1951 going to the festival of britain Mm. and then they carry on from there and the impact it had on them and i've always thought the interesting thing about people who end up doing creative work in their adult life that they do it because somehow or other somewhere in their childhood somebody passed the baton to them, to use the Olympic analogy. And it may have been an art teacher or an English teacher or a parent or a friend of a parent, or it may well be going to some kind of event. Somehow that inspired them. And so the the legacy, we won't really know the full impact of the legacy, maybe for 30, 40, 50 years, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure that uh, hundreds, if not thousands of young people, maybe tens of thousands of young people, will this summer uh, um, have have the door open to them and the baton passed. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it is. It's that longer term. We're not really going to know for at least 10 or 20 years. And that's why it's good now to be planning, you know, 2013 to 20 now, because you can't just click your fingers and expect everything to happen. Also, I think it's important that things grow slowly sometimes. Mm. So we're doing a a ring of projects around the edge of the park, because of course, you won't be able to get into the park until 2013 or 2014. And they're three year projects so that by the time the whole park is open, it'll open partly in 2013, partly in 2014. People will be used to these projects and they'll be involved in them and then they'll feel comfortable with them and then they'll pop into the park and then the whole thing springs to life. What happens to the park in the interim? So on the 10th of September, the Paralympic Games ends on the 9th of September and the park then closes for all the low-cog stuff to be taken out of the park and it reopens, the north part of the park reopens on the 27th of July 2013 and then the whole park opens on in the spring of 2014, which sounds like a long time, but in fact it's the quickest, I think, that a park's ever been done because, of course, this park was designed for legacy, not just for the Olympic Games. Peter, you're a... Um well, you'll forgive me if I say a veteran of several Olympics, and um, you've seen um, the so-called legacy of games in other cities, and they have not always been a pretty sight. No, it, no, that's right. I think, um, I mean, of course, it's wonderful that London is doing all of this. Um, I've been to the first games I went to was Atlanta, and I remember very clearly um, they put on a very respectable and quite moving little um, cluster of shows to do with civil rights, to do very much with Atlantis' role as a sort of centre of, of, of African-American culture. Um, and I remember very clearly taking an afternoon off the swimming or water polo or whatever and, and going in to see these things. And, and there really was nobody there. I mean, it was quite clear that there wasn't a connection uh, between the two. I also went to the Athens Olympics, where you would have thought that culture and heritage were very obvious point. But again, I remember very clearly seeing a, a play by Aristophanes on during one of the nights and, and the, the theatre was not as full as it would have been, I think, had the Olympics not been, had the sport not been a distraction. Um, having said that, London is not Athens or Atlanta or even Barcelona or any of these things. It's, it is a cultural metropolis. Um, people will go to the culture and, uh, and I think that won't be so much a problem.
Also, there's a difference between a sort of prescriptive legacy, where you actually make make things and hope people uh, get something from them, and the, the enabling legacy. Um, uh, I know, for instance, in, in poetry, we're trying to get people to celebrate this extraordinary year, both of Olympics and of Jubilee, by putting poetry into the landscape around them, and so into school playgrounds and parks and so forth. There's something that people, hopefully, for um, many hundreds of years hence, will be able to look and, 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 and see some poetry and understand why it was there, and that's just one little art form. I hope out of this, and this extraordinary investment across the country, all kinds of people will feel enabled to go and uh, create their own legacy. And uh, that may, in, in, in the long term, end up being considerably more powerful than anything that um, we've been able to put together with the Olympic budget. Mm, I think that's exactly right, William, and I think it's the same in the park. I think that it's not about prescribing what's going to happen. So, for example, there's poetry in the park inscribed on electricity transformer boxes. The poetry is all very relevant locally. One, one poem is about it's called uh, Bicycling for Ladies. It's about Sylvia Pankhurst, who lived nearby. It's by John Burnside. Now, I think people may not notice those poems for weeks or months or maybe years, and I don't know what will happen around the poems, but I'm pretty sure something will. And I think, actually, it's about being open to people doing what they want with it rather than prescribing, well, this will be a music area and this will be this and this will be that. I think that people find ways to make things happen in a much more interesting way in London. You know, it's the east end of London, but there's a very, um, you know, individual, quite a sort of spiky uh, young population there who will make things they want to make happen rather than us saying this is what it should be. And one of the best examples is the Athletes' Wall, which is this enormous um, wall in in the Athletes' Village, which you can't help but see if you're an athlete. And we, um, Sarah and I, work very closely together. And with the BBC, we came up with a um, a sort of public access idea to say, what what should we put on that wall? What should we put to to inspire the athletes? And we end up choosing the last line of Tennyson's Ulysses, which is a nice link to the ancient Greeks, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. But on the other side of the wall, the wall that faces into the building, which is going to be become an academy, a school, um, is the whole of the poem. So for generations, school children are going to see that long after the ephemeral sporting events are gone. Although rather hilariously, I saw a piece in the paper over the weekend. A journalist was writing about a, a sleepover and talking about corporate messages, and they mentioned one of the corporate messages being to strive to seek, to find, and not to yield. And I thought Ten- Tennyson will be turning in his grave. <laughs> well, poetry is for everybody, <laughs> for good and ill. Um, given that we live in a, an extraordinary cultural centre and an awful lot of things happen Anyway, in this city, we have poetry readings, we have wonderful um, projects, we have theatre, we have concerts galore. None of us can get to all of them. So much happens. Is it really worth spending all this money to have an extra thing called a cultural Olympiad? Can we really justify that, do you think? Can we just bring Peter in for, with a journalistic eye. Yeah, well, I think I think as William just um, explained, I think you do have to, to separate the things, the, the performative things which are going on in London, which are, if you like, nice little bolt-ons for tourists to come and have a look at. And, and you can imagine all of those things happening. Pina Bausch season, you know, Rattle at the Proms, all those things that are the headline act, even the Shakespeare, the BM shows, the Damien Hirst show at Tate Modern. You can imagine all of those happening completely independently of the Olympics and all drawing fantastic crowds. Um, so I, I do wonder a little bit about that. The enabling thing is something 
as as has already been remarked, which is is more unpredictable. We do have to wait to see what is going to come of that. And it's a nice thought that they could be associated with a big sporting event like the Olympics. And what I would have liked to see is the cultural Olympiad engage with the Olympics themselves a little bit more rigorously and critically. And um, and in the piece that I've just written I, I, for the newspaper, I, I would like to have seen some exploration, if, if you like, the dark side of the Olympics, you know, because mm. everyone talks about how you know, we're in cheerleading frenzy at the moment about the Olympics. And I get that because I love I love the sport. But there are so many contentious issues to do with the Olympics. And I would have liked to have seen our artists and writers engage and explore with those. Because London, London is a city that respects tradition and that loves its sport. But it's also a city of mavericks and cynics and decriers. And I would have liked to have seen some of that come out. Well, there is some of that, actually. The Free Word Centre are running a whole programme around that, um, right in the centre of London. So you can get involved in that. Um, so um, uh, I think there's something more central, though, which is that when the Olympics began all, all those centuries ago, uh, the, the, the poets and the artists got a stadium as big as the, uh, uh, as the sports people. And, and uh, I think it's incredibly important that we celebrate all of this. Uh, that was the original Olympic ideal. And unfortunately, in, in a way, it's been stolen a bit by sport. And even the modern version of the Olympics, when it, when it began again in 1896, for the first few Olympiads, their, their culture was a really significant component. Why was it dropped? Why was it dropped? I think the politics of the 1930s. I don't know. I'm not a great Olympic historian, but I'm glad it's back in that sense. And I'm glad that we are celebrating Olympians of all kinds. I think, I think the other thing about the Cultural Olympiad, for me, I, when you were talking about Pina Bausch and everything else, I accept that some of those could happen. But I was thinking I was at Urban Classics last night in the East End and it was an incredibly young audience. And I think some of those sort of things wouldn't have happened actually without the Olympics or maybe the Hackney Weekend or the free tickets. I think it's more that. It's brought people together in a different way. and There are partnerships that are different that I'm not sure would have happened if it hadn't been for the Olympics. And I think the interesting thing is can some of that creative stuff carry on after the Olympics? Can some of those different partnerships carry on after the Olympics, particularly with young people? Do you think um, that will have an international impact mm. or do you think that the local... And we have two things yeah. really, don't we? We have the importance of the re- regeneration of East London yeah. and that, those projects. Then there's the nationwide cultural impact, which actually we're quite good at anyway. We probably yeah. didn't really need that. And then there's the whole question of London on the world stage, which... Yeah. So it seems to me there are these three... Hello and welcome back to the FT Arts podcast... Stretching over four years and encompassing more than 500 events, the Cultural Olympiad is the artistic marathon that culminates with the current London 2012 festival, and it could be said to be sprinting towards its finishing line. But has this unprecedented artistic project, which has cost a reported £97 million to stage, succeeded in ensuring that the Olympics and Paralympics are not just about sport? I'm Jan Daly, and in the studio to discuss the impact of the Olympiad are Sarah Weir, Chief Executive of the Legacy List, the post-Olympic charity set up for arts, culture, education and skills, William Seacart, founder of the Forward Arts Foundation and its Associated Poetry Prize, and the instigator of Winning Words, a national initiative to incorporate poetry into the Olympic Games, and Peter Afton, the FT's cultural commentator and columnist. 
Sarah. For many people, legacy means the future of the stadiums and venues built for the games. How does culture come into it? Culture comes into it by building on the last four years of the Olympic Deliveries Authority's art in the park and then taking it on for the future through the work of the charity. And William, winning words will put permanent poetry installations and and temporary animations into the Olympic Park. What's its aim? Well, I think poetry is our cultural legacy to the world, you know, the language of Shakespeare and Chaucer and countless others. So I think it's very, very important that uh, that is framed as part of the, the sporting event. Peter, the Olympiad is intended to have a national constituency and this year's Edinburgh Festival, for example, will be larger than usual as a result. Do you feel it has succeeded in helping expand the focus away from London? It's taken a little bit of the focus away from London, but I do want to emphasise, you know, when an Olympic Games gets going, um, it really does dominate everything. And in the future, the London Olympic Games will be remembered for those moments of sport, those extraordinary moments, which tend to blast away anything else that's going on in the national and indeed international consciousness. Can you put your love of sport aside a little bit? Because we're talking about culture here. So, William, what's happening with winning words outside London? Outside London, we've got uh, words that are going to be uh, cast permanently into the infrastructure of some of the other venues and um, training camps. But also we've got some beacon towns around Britain who are uh, going to become poetry towns. And they're not only going to put poetry physically into their infrastructure, but it's going to go much deeper than that. And local community organisations, local schools and so forth will get involved in poetic events. And Sarah, the cultural life at a local level, do you think it will continue to be influenced once the fireworks have faded from our memory? Mm, I do, because firstly, the Olympic Delivery Authority's work that I oversaw for four years is all permanent. So there's a creative presence in the park, both the look of the park and the feel, but also through the legacy list. We've already got about eight projects on the go. We just announced the shortlist for the next floating cinema, which will be for the next three years and culminate in hopefully a pop-up cinema on the park. We've got a three-year art camp for young people already going. We've just done a poetry project for 950 young people around the park and the results are out next week so we're already doing the future right now actually there's a longer term impact as well which is i can't tell you how many adults have said to me during my lifetime i remember in 1951 going to the festival of britain Mm. and then they carry on from there and the impact it had on them and i've always thought the interesting thing about people who end up doing creative work in their adult life that they do it because somehow or other somewhere in their childhood somebody passed the baton to them, to use the Olympic analogy. And it may have been an art teacher or an English teacher or a parent or a friend of a parent, or it may well be going to some kind of event. Somehow that inspired them. And so the the legacy, we won't really know the full impact of the legacy, maybe for 30, 40, 50 years, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure that uh, hundreds, if not thousands of young people, maybe tens of thousands of young people, will this summer uh, um, have have the door open to them and the baton passed. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it is. It's that longer term. We're not really going to know for at least 10 or 20 years. And that's why it's good now to be planning, you know, 2013 to 20 now, because you can't just click your fingers and expect everything to happen. Also, I think it's important that things grow slowly sometimes. Mm. So we're doing a a ring of projects around the edge of the park, because of course, you won't be able to get into the park until 2013 or 2014. And they're three year projects so that by the time the whole park is open, it'll open partly in 2013, partly in 2014. People will be used to these projects and they'll be involved in them and then they'll feel comfortable with them and then they'll pop into the park and then the whole thing springs to life.
What happens to the park in the interim? So on the 10th of September, the Paralympic Games ends on the 9th of September and the park then closes for all the low-cog stuff to be taken out of the park and it reopens, the north part of the park reopens on the 27th of July 2013 and then the whole park opens on in the spring of 2014, which sounds like a long time, but in fact it's the quickest, I think, that a park's ever been done because, of course, this park was designed for legacy, not just for the Olympic Games. Peter, you're a... Um well, you'll forgive me if I say a veteran of several Olympics, and um, you've seen um, the so-called legacy of games in other cities, and they have not always been a pretty sight. No, it, no, that's right. I think, um, I mean, of course, it's wonderful that London is doing all of this. Um, I've been to the first games I went to was Atlanta, and I remember very clearly um, they put on a very respectable and quite moving little um, cluster of shows to do with civil rights, to do very much with Atlantis' role as a sort of centre of, of, of African-American culture. Um, and I remember very clearly taking an afternoon off the swimming or water polo or whatever and, and going in to see these things. And, and there really was nobody there. I mean, it was quite clear that there wasn't a connection uh, between the two. I also went to the Athens Olympics, where you would have thought that culture and heritage were very obvious point. But again, I remember very clearly seeing a, a play by Aristophanes on during one of the nights and, and the, the theatre was not as full as it would have been, I think, had the Olympics not been, had the sport not been a distraction. Um, having said that, London is not Athens or Atlanta or even Barcelona or any of these things. It's, it is a cultural metropolis. Um, people will go to the culture and, uh, and I think that won't be so much a problem. Also, there's a difference between a sort of prescriptive legacy where you actually make make things and hope people uh, get something from them and the, the enabling legacy. Um, uh, I know, for instance, in, in poetry, we're trying to get people to celebrate this extraordinary year, both of Olympics and of Jubilee, by putting poetry into the landscape around them and so into school playgrounds and parks and so forth. There's something that people hopefully for um, many hundreds of years hence will be able to look and, 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 and see some poetry and understand why it was there. And that's just one little art form. I hope out of this and this extraordinary investment across the country, all kinds of people will feel enabled to go and uh, create their own legacy. And uh, that may, in, in the long term, end up being considerably more powerful than anything that um, we've been able to put together with the Olympic budget. Mm, I think that's exactly right, William. And I think it's the same in the park. I think that it's not about prescribing what's going to happen. So, for example, there's poetry in the park inscribed on electricity transformer boxes. The poetry is all very relevant locally. One, one poem is about, it's called uh, Bicycling for Ladies. It's about Sylvia Pankhurst, who lived nearby. It's by John Burnside. Now, I think people may not notice those poems for weeks or months or maybe years, and I don't know what will happen around the poems, but I'm pretty sure something will. And I think, actually, it's about being open to people doing what they want with it rather than prescribing, well, this will be a music area and this will be this and this will be that. I think that people find ways to make things happen in a much more interesting way in London. You know, it's the East End of London, but there's a very, um, you know, individual, quite a sort of spiky uh, young population there who will make things they want to make happen rather well, than us saying this is what it should be. And one of the best examples is the 
Athletes' Wall, which is this enormous yeah, um, yeah. wall in, in the Athletes' Village, which it, you can't help but see if you're an athlete. And we, um, Sarah and I, work very closely together. And with the BBC, we came up with a, um, a sort of pub, a public access idea to say, what, what should we put on that wall? What should we put to, to inspire the athletes? And we end up choosing the last line of Tennyson's Ulysses, which is a nice link to the ancient Greeks, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. But on the other side of the wall, the wall that faces into the building, which is going to become an academy, a school, um, is the whole of the poem. So for generations, school children are going to see that long after the ephemeral sporting events are gone. Although rather hilariously, I saw a piece in the paper over the weekend. A journalist was writing about a, a sleepover and talking about corporate messages. And they mentioned one of the corporate messages being yeah. to strive to seek, to find and not to yield. And I thought Ten- Tennyson will yeah. be turning in his grave. <laughs> well, poetry is for everybody, <laughs> for good and ill. Um, given that we live in a, an extraordinary cultural centre and an awful lot of things happen Anyway, in this city, we have poetry readings, we have wonderful um, projects, we have theatre, we have concerts galore. None of us can get to all of them. So much happens. Is it really worth spending all this money to have an extra thing called a cultural Olympiad? Can we really justify that, do you think? Can we just bring Peter in for, with a journalistic eye. Yeah, well, I think I think as William just um, explained, I think you do have to, to separate the things, the, the performative things which are going on in London, which are, if you like, nice little bolt-ons for tourists to come and have a look at. And, and you can imagine all of those things happening. Pina Bausch season, you know, Rattle at the Proms, all those things that are the headline act, even the Shakespeare, the BM shows, the Damien Hirst show at Tate Modern. You can imagine all of those happening completely independently of the Olympics and all drawing fantastic crowds. Um, so I, I do wonder a little bit about that. The enabling thing is something, as, as has already been remarked, which is, is more unpredictable. We do have to wait to see what is going to come of that. And it's a nice thought that they could be associated with a big sporting event like the Olympics. And what I would have liked to see is the cultural Olympiad engage with the Olympics themselves a little bit more rigorously and critically. And um, and in the piece that I've just written I, I, uh, for the newspaper, I, I would like to have seen some exploration, if, if you like, the dark side of the Olympics, you know, because mm. everyone talks about how you know, we're in cheerleading frenzy at the moment about the Olympics. And I get that because I love I love the sport. But there are so many contentious issues to do with the Olympics. And I would have liked to have seen our artists and writers engage and explore with those. Because London, London is a city that respects tradition and that loves its sport. But it's also a city of mavericks and cynics and decriers. And I would have liked to have seen some of that come out. Well, there is some of that, actually. The Free Word Centre are running a whole programme around that, um, right in the centre of London. So you can get involved in that. Um, so um, uh, I think there's something more central, though, which is that when the Olympics began all, all those centuries ago, uh, the, the, the poets and the artists got a stadium as big as the, uh, uh, as the sports people. And, and uh, I think it's incredibly important that we celebrate all of this. Uh, that was the original Olympic ideal. And unfortunately, in, in a way, it's been stolen a bit by sport. And even the modern version of the Olympics, when it, when it began again in 1896, for the first few Olympiads, their, their culture was a really significant component. Why was it dropped? Why was it dropped? I think the politics of the 1930s. I don't know. I'm not a great Olympic historian, but I'm glad it's back in that sense. And I'm glad that we are celebrating Olympians of all kinds. 
I think I think the other thing about the cultural Olympiad for me, I, when you were talking about Pina Bausch and everything else, I accept that some of those could happen. But I was thinking I was at Urban Classics last night in the East End, and it was an incredibly young audience, and. I think some of those sort of things wouldn't have happened actually without the Olympics or maybe the Hackney Weekend or the free tickets. I think it's more that. It's brought people together in a different way and there are partnerships that are different that I'm not sure would have happened if it hadn't been for the Olympics. And I think the interesting thing is can some of that creative stuff carry on after the Olympics? Can some of those different partnerships carry on after the Olympics, particularly with young people? Do you think um, that will have an international impact mm. or do you think that the local... And we have two things yeah. really, don't we? We have the importance of the re- regeneration of East London yeah. and that, those projects. Then there's the nationwide cultural impact, which actually we're quite good at anyway. We probably yeah. didn't really need that. And then there's the whole question of London on the world stage, which yeah. so it seems to me there are these three things going on simultaneously do do you think that the balance is right do you think we've got got this well Uh, I think I think the international is the one that's really interesting I mean the cultural olympiad is going to do uh, quite a lot their legacy is really with Rio and I was talking to some of the people from Rio the other day you know they're doing a Rio occupation here and want to do the same out to Rio I'm thinking we've just shortlisted for the floating cinema four architectural firms two are London one is Beijing and uh, one is Germany so it's, and it's really nice. And that wasn't, you know, we weren't trying in a way to get that nice spread, but they were the four that came through best. And I think for me, it's that London international thing that I think is important. Lots of international artists live here, but also London, the world is in London. And I think we need to keep exploring that, whether it's with Rio or other cities or just you know, keep thinking about those 204 countries that were here for the Olympics. What's the 204 cultural legacies with those countries. But, and, and also that's just on, on the grand scale. I mean, the collective of all the individual experiences that people are going to have yeah. and the international impact of those experiences will never be able to measure. But I'm sure, as I said at the beginning, uh, with the Festival of Britain, I'm sure people were going to be talking about 2012 and that summer in London all over the world for a lifetime. The Festival of Britain, I mean, that post-war moment, and it also coincides mm-hmm. with the the founding of the third programme, the Edinburgh Festival, and a definite feeling that after the appalling things that happened in the Second World War, that culture and the arts could really mend people's relationships with each other, build bridges across nations, and tremendously idealistic spirit. Um, it was a sea change, to use a very commonly used phrase. Is there a possibility of that kind of sea change now? Because... As far as I can see, a lot of the things you've both talked about are currently going on anyway. Well, I don't know about a sea change, but uh, a lot depends on how audiences um, get to these events and what is the makeup of these audiences. If it is simply the traditional audiences for these art forms, having a bit of a bonanza year with some wonderful talent out there for them to go and see, then we will not make any, any massive headway. If, however, new people are introduced to different art forms uh, for the first time in their lives, then we can do something startling and transformative. For me, it's when I'm at an event and I, and I don't know anybody, I think, thank goodness for that. If I'm at an event and I sort of know everyone, it's, you know, it's almost as if we're all talking to each other because, of course, we would go to things. And that has happened this summer. I've gone to things and I thought, I don't know anybody here. That's good. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's a continuation of a drive that's been going on for the last yeah, 10 years true. or so, yeah, bringing in non-traditional true. audiences. And I think most cultural institutions have 
done extremely well mm. in trying to do that. I think London is possibly a world leader in that. Yes, but you can never underestimate the cultural barriers to people. Many years ago, as a publisher, uh, I started making um, ch- uh, children's books for, for one of the big supermarket chains, and we sold a million books over a year. And we discovered in the research afterwards that 50% of the people buying the books had never been to a bookshop in their lives because they found a bookshop an intimidating place and they wouldn't know what to buy. And this is what the summer, where, as I said, it could be transformative. If people who felt in the past this was not for them, that they they couldn't for some reason or other access these particular art forms, suddenly for the first time feel they can, and we've opened that door for them, then we really have created something transformative. I think the other thing is, there's, I mean, for example, there's a, there's a youth radio station which has just been set up by the London Legacy Development Corporation. It's one of the founding members of the charity. And there's a piece that out live at the moment about the legacy. And they are in their early 20s, these people. And they've, they've set the thing up. They're doing it their way, telling the stories their way. And I think some of that sort of collaboration, I, I don't know that that would have happened without this sort of thing. So it's not really maybe a sea change. It's a, it's a different shift I'm interested in the sort of interface between sport and culture. I mean, Peter is as much at home on the stadium terraces as he is on the in the theatre stalls or in an art gallery, but he might be quite a rare breed. I wonder really whether the, as it were, the, the, the audiences, the consumers of the games proper and the cultural Olympiad will actually cross over very much. Well, uh, it's interesting. We, we've got uh, 14 of the BBC sports presenters to uh, recite s- some of the winning words poems to camera, and I'm sure they're going to appear as part of the BBC coverage. I know even the BBC studios at the Games are going to be covered in poetry, and a lot of the big screen activity around the country uh, in between sporting events is going to involve some poetry. So while you're busy uh, leaning back waiting for the next heat of the 100 metres or whatever, maybe a poem's going to come up on your screen. So I'm really hoping that this time there will be a genuine interaction. And what Winning Words as a project has been about is to get people to understand um, how how words inspire people in everyday life, um, how useful they are. After all, in the business of, of sport, in the business of motivation and coaching and, you know, in team sports, managers at halftime and so on, they're all using words to try and inspire people. And whether you're, you know, you're a 100-metre athlete uh, on the starter's block waiting to go, something is going through your head to inspire you, and it's probably words and images. So uh, trying to make these sorts of connections, um, and that's what um, I've done a lot of work with the BBC um, for trying to make those co- connections. I, well, I'm just hoping this time we'll make a bit of a breakthrough. I think it's a whole spectrum, though. I mean, I think some people are completely sport, some people are completely art, and most of us are on a continuum. Mm. I mean, I love the Olympics. I'm hopeless at sport, but I enjoy watching them. Of course, <laughs> I, I remember following on from your point about the commentators, um, Gary Lineker um, reciting some words of Shakespeare before England's rather appalling performance uh, in the recent European Championships. There's a danger of real sort of bathos there, isn't there? Um, I think, I think you know, as much as um, culture is using sport, the visceral appeal of sport to try and get onto a main stage, um, it's the other way around too. I think, um, I think sport. And, and particularly the International Olympic Committee is uh, is very wedded to the idea of attaching itself to 
culture, it kind of gives it a classy veneer that perhaps all that vulgar competition might not uh, live up to. We often don't. We're often not aware of um, the crossover, too. For instance, I've just made an anthology, Winning Words, um, which um, Faber have just brought out. And amongst the, the poems I've chosen were You'll Never Walk Alone, uh, Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these are things you hear chanted on the terraces of football and rugby matches. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. I wish everybody well in their vulgar competition. And thank you so much to William Seacott, Sarah Weir and Peter Ashton, and to you all for listening. The London Festival runs until September the 9th. The Arts Podcast was produced by Nicholas Spencer. Well, I don't know about a sea change, but uh, a lot depends on how audiences um, get to these events and what is the makeup of these audiences. If it is simply the traditional audiences for these art forms, having a bit of a bonanza year with some wonderful talent out there for them to go and see, then we will not make any any massive headway. If, however, new people are introduced to different art forms uh, for the first time in their lives, then we can do something startling and transformative. For me, it's when I'm at an event and I, and I don't know anybody, I think, thank goodness for that. Mm. If I'm at an event and I sort of know everyone, it's, you know, it's almost as if we're all talking to each other mm. because, of course, we would go to things. And that has happened this summer. I've gone to things and I thought, I don't know anybody here. That's good. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's a continuation of a drive that's been going on for the last yeah, 10 years true. or so, yeah, bringing in non-traditional true. audiences. And I think most cultural institutions have done extremely well mm. in trying to do that. I think London is possibly a world leader in that. Yes, but you can never underestimate the cultural barriers to people. Many years ago, as a publisher, uh, I started making um, ch- uh, children's books for, for one of the big supermarket chains, and we sold a million books over a year. And we discovered in the research afterwards that 50% of the people buying the books had never been to a bookshop in their lives because they found a bookshop an intimidating place and they wouldn't know what to buy. And this is what the summer, where, as I said, it could be transformative. If people who felt in the past this was not for them, that they, they, they couldn't for some reason or other access these particular art forms, suddenly for the first time feel they can, and we've opened that door for them, then we really have created something transformative. I think the other thing is, there's, I mean, for example, there's a, there's a youth radio station which has just been set up by the London Legacy Development Corporation. It's one of the founding members of the charity. And there's a piece that out live at the moment about the legacy. And they are in their early 20s, these people. And they've, they've set the thing up. They're doing it their way, telling the stories their way. And I think some of that sort of collaboration, I, I don't know that that would have happened without this sort of thing. So it's not really maybe a sea change. It's a, it's a different shift I'm interested in the sort of interface between sport and culture. I mean, Peter is as much at home on the stadium terraces as he is on the in the theatre stalls or in an art gallery, but he might be quite a rare breed. I wonder really whether the, as it were, the, the, the audiences, the consumers of the games proper and the cultural Olympiad will actually cross over very much. Well, uh, it's interesting. We, we've got uh, 14 of the BBC sports presenters to 
recite some of the winning words poems to camera and I'm sure they're going to appear as part of the BBC coverage. I know even the BBC studios at the Games are going to be covered in poetry and a lot of the big screen activity around the country uh, in between sporting events is going to involve some poetry. So while you're busy uh, leaning back waiting for the next heat of the 100 metres or whatever, maybe a poem's going to come up on your screen. So I'm really hoping that this time there will be a genuine interaction. And what Winning Words as a project has been about is to get people to understand um, how how words inspire people in everyday life, um, how useful they are. After all, in the business of sport, in the business of motivation and coaching and, you know, in team sports, managers at halftime and so on, they're all using words to try and inspire people. And whether you're, you know, you're a 100-metre athlete uh, on the starter's block waiting to go, something is going through your head to inspire you, and it's probably words and images. So uh, trying to make these sorts of connections, um, and that's what um, I've done a lot of work with the BBC um, for trying to make those co- connections. I, well, I'm just hoping this time we'll make a bit of a breakthrough. I think it's a whole spectrum, though. I mean, I think some people are completely sport, some people are completely art, and most of us are on a continuum. Mm. I mean, I love the Olympics. I'm hopeless at sport, but I enjoy watching them. Of course, I, I remember following on from your point about the commentators, um, Gary Lineker um, reciting some words of Shakespeare before England's rather appalling performance uh, in the recent European Championships. There's a danger of real sort of bathos there, isn't there? Um, I think, I think you know, as much as um, culture is using sport, the visceral appeal of sport to try and get onto a main stage, um, it's the other way around too. I think, um, I think sport. And, and particularly the International Olympic Committee is uh, is very wedded to the idea of attaching itself to culture. It kind of gives it a classy veneer that perhaps all that vulgar competition might not uh, live up to. We often don't. We often not aware of um, the crossover too. For instance, I've just made an anthology, winning words, um, which um, Faber have just brought out. And amongst the the poems I've chosen were "You'll Never Walk Alone." Uh, Jerusalem. You know, these are things you hear chanted on the terraces of football and rugby matches. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. I wish everybody well in their vulgar competition. And thank you so much to William Seacott, Sarah Weir and Peter Afton and to you all for listening. The London Festival runs until September the 9th. The Arts Podcast was produced by Nicholas Spencer.